This is the Monday, February 13th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. We're uploading this episode for Lincoln's birthday, February 13th. This week, our time machine travels back to the final days of America's Civil War, as Abraham Lincoln turns his weary eyes forward to ending the rebellion and pushing for his vision of a new, reunited United States. The Great Emancipator does so by leaving the White House for his longest break since the war began, and spending those days with General Ulysses S. Grant's command at City Point, known today as Hopewell, 130 miles south of the nation's capital. Our guide on this trip is Noah Andre Trudeau, who brings us Lincoln's Greatest Journey, 16 Days That Changed the Presidency, March 24th to April 8th, 1865. Mr. Trudeau is the author of several books on the Civil War. His first, Bloody Road South, won the Civil War Roundtable of New York's prestigious Fletcher Pratt Award, and his fourth, Like Men of War, a combat history of black troops in the Civil War, earned the Grady McWhiney Research Foundation's Jerry Coffey Memorial Book Prize. You can browse all of his works at lincoln1865.com. Okay. Now that we've set the chronometer on the old ironclad time machine to 1865, let's meet Noah Andre Trudeau and tag along on Lincoln's Greatest Journey. I'm joined on the line by Noah Andre Trudeau, author of Lincoln's Greatest Journey, 16 Days That Changed the Presidency, March 24th to April 8th, 1865. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, my pleasure, Dean. I love the relationship between Grant and Lincoln, so this was a book I had to pick up. Grant is such a quiet guy, and Lincoln, I picture him just so under siege. He always looks so sad and noble, right? That's one of the things that draws us to him. And I think of him saying things like, I could be in a room with General Grant for 10 minutes and not know he was there, because unlike everybody else who's looking for favors from him and is pressuring him or telling him how to run the war, Grant seemed to just have such a natural way with him. Maybe it's because he was so good with horses. But I wonder what drew you to their relationship and to focus on these 16 days to recover this lost story of Lincoln? Well, uh, that's two questions there. I'll do the big one first. I'm always on the lookout for stories that I feel I can bring something to for the reader in, in terms of either material or perspective that you hadn't seen before, or in this case, I think really 
I was a little surprised when I realized that a book written by Don Fonts in 1989 was really, as far as I could tell, the last real effort to try to chronicle this period in Lincoln's life. I mean, people don't realize that in the 21 days preceding his assassination, Abraham Lincoln is not in Washington for 18 of them. He's traveling for two, and he spends 16 of them at City Point, Virginia. This is the longest break he took from the White House, certainly in his entire first term. And, it, you know, it just raises the question, what happened? What did he, what, who did he see? What did he, what did he meet? You know, I read a lot of the standard biographies and sources, and I realized they're all basically dipping into the same well of information. And I don't blame them. I mean, historians and biographers are, at their core, storytellers. And I'll be the first to say that I understand that April 14, 1865 is one of the most powerful stories in American history at Ford's Theater. And I think it sometimes blinds these other writers, though, to the fact they're sort of in such a rush to get to the big story that they just grab the low-hanging fruit, which are readily available sources, and that becomes the template of this story. And I always believe that if you're approaching anything, you need to kick all the tires and question all sources, sort of ask the logical questions. Could they have seen what they said they saw? Do they have an agenda uh, for why they're saying what they're saying? based on this person's larger track record? Is this person trustworthy? Do I have any reason to doubt this person? And when I started to kick the basic sources of the template, I realized they were all flawed to one degree or another, and that just emboldened me to start digging deeper, and, and I wound up uncovering, I think, a wealth of sources. And I like to feel that we're seeing this story for the first time. Now, Lincoln and Grant have some quality time at City Point, not in terms of length especially, but in terms of being able to sort of just let their hair down, sit and talk to each other. There's no aides hovering around. There's no media outside the window. The wives are in the next room doing whatever they're doing. And I think it, it was just this slow but important process of Lincoln coming to understand something of Grant's skill set and his determination that I don't think he had realized before. And Grant really beginning to understand some of the, the essential qualities of Lincoln that I think impressed him and would later, I think, be always in his mind when he became president. Now, you know, they've had meetings before, but these were always Grant coming up to deal with some issues and some questions. There are no real important issues that they have to discuss. They're just basically getting to know each other to some extent. And I think that comes out of this. You know, there's a reason why Lincoln originally had really just planned this to be like a four-day trip. I think once he understood that Grant had a plan, although Grant very properly did not share any details, to take the offensive against Lee's forces at Petersburg and Richmond, and Grant was determined that this would be the final campaign. And I think Lincoln caught that. And suddenly here was the opportunity for him, if you will, to be on the ground when the great military victory that signals the beginning of the end of the Civil War will take place that keeps him there for day after day and ultimately has him down there for 16 days. So I think this is the key time that Grant and Lincoln spend 
some time together, and it's only a couple of days because after Lincoln's there four days, Grant goes to the front, and they only meet, well, really twice more, once more at the Wallace House when Petersburg falls, and then in the White House when Grant comes just before the assassination. But to me, it's an important moment in time, and I wanted everyone to feel it, to get a sense of what it was like, and that's what I tried to do here. You talked about going to those primary sources in another interview I heard you doing on your book about Sherman's March to the Sea. That's what I hear you saying you're doing here in Lincoln's Greatest Journey. You started off by saying, quote, the tragic saga of Abraham Lincoln's assassination is profoundly etched in American memory, so much so that a striking story within that story has been all but lost, unquote. That's what I thought of when I read it. I said, you know, most other books I read, yeah, they mentioned he popped down there, but they talked about it just like that. Like he just casually went there and let's hurry up kind of and get to the assassination, right? We sort of want to get to the end scene there. Lincoln, because he is this mythic figure, this tragic figure, we forget that people like that in history weren't always cast in stone on the mall in Washington. Lincoln doesn't feel quite so invincible when he goes down there after four years of war. So describe a little bit of the president's health and his state of mind during the period of Lincoln's greatest journey. Well, I think there's a couple of phases to his stay down there. Certainly the first four or five days is a recovery time. He is just burned out. The Spielberg movie say what you will about it, but I think it does catch something of the intensity of the campaign that it took to get the 13th Amendment through Congress. That plus the fact that as a newly elected president, he is besieged by office seekers who want uh, jobs in a new government, and uh, they're just zeroing in on him. And it's all just too much for him. And clearly, there's just account after account that speaks to how his pallor, his lack of energy, and clearly, getting out of Washington without the phone ringing, or in this case, the telegraph key ticking, with any sort of information. I mean, for those 16 days, he literally does none of the business of government. He signs no bills. He weighs in on no legislation. He's really pulled the plug, you know, gone unplugged for those 16 days. And I think after four or five down there, he's starting to refine himself. And then, you know, for the first time, I think he truly realizes how close the end of the war is. I think that interaction with Grant makes him understand that it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And that starts him to realize he's got to start getting serious now about post-war issues and a post-war government. And I think it starts to turn his thinking in that direction. So this is also a period where he sort of begins the process or continues well, clearly, I think he's been thinking about this all along, but this stay at City Point lends an urgency to the need to make that transition from a war president to a post-war president more quickly than he had anticipated. So I think that's part of the importance of what happens down here. Let's step back to how this trip gets started, because that brings in General Grant's wife, Julia. I'm a big admirer. I'm always interested in their relationship. It's a very sweet one. Describe how she prods her husband here and how this ball gets rolling to bring the president down to City Point. Lincoln, of course, we know he's had problems with the other generals. He's thinking about it. He's really worn down. He's not feeling well. So explain how eventually Lincoln does begin coming down there with Julia sort of playing a role. Well, Lincoln is clearly thinking about getting out of town, and it's just one of those issues of timing. 
one of the newspaper accounts uh, about Lincoln's health condition catches Julia's eye. And believe it or not, I mean, even though we're talking about, you know, nowadays when a president escapes from the White House, he goes to a sea of tranquility somewhere, whether it's in Massachusetts or Hawaii, wherever. Lincoln goes to the nerve center of one of the largest military operations in the United States at that time, which is the operations against Richmond and Petersburg. But still, there's sort of a quiet spot at City Point where he can get away from things. So Julia thinks that it wouldn't be such a bad idea if he comes down here, and she goes and talks to Ulysses and says, why don't you invite him down? And he says, you know, he's the commander-in-chief. If he wants to come down here, he's going to come down here. <laughs> and and she sort of shakes her head, I think, saying, no, you, he, he doesn't get it. You don't get it. And so she goes to, um, and again, another sub-story to the, the larger story. Starting in late 64, Robert Lincoln, Abraham's oldest son, is sort of saying, look, I need to see something of this war. This is the greatest event in American history, and I can't be sitting on the sidelines. And for the longest time, Mary resists because she fears she doesn't want her son to get killed. She just lost one in the White House, and I think that was a terrible blow to her. And ultimately, Lincoln comes up typically with a very clever compromise where he, he writes a personal letter to Grant and says, you know, I'm not writing you as the commander-in-chief and asks if Grant would take Robert into what he calls your military family, that is, his staff down at City Point. And Grant immediately says, absolutely. And so right after the inauguration, Robert Lincoln joins the staff of General Ulysses S. Grant. So when Julia sort of hits the dead end with Ulysses, she knows who to go to to get some advice, and she goes to Robert. And she says, do you think the president would take it the wrong way if Ulysses invited him down. He said, no, he would otherwise feel he'd be getting in the way. So by all means, so that's, she goes back to him and he sends the note and he says, great idea. I'm on the way. And you know, it all goes from there. You mentioned something else about the primary sources and about being storytellers, looking at some great things that have already been written and not going back to some of those letters and things 150 years ago, because we've read the later works already and they've been sort of reprocessed. You did that with a bunch of letters here in Lincoln's Greatest Journey. Where did you find those or did you have to go all over to take you on a trip? I know you've done trips for research and other books, but how did you know which ones you wanted to go and dig up and really look into for this unexplored span of 16 days? Well, I certainly knew the archival sources. And, you know, a lot of, you know, like Michael Burleigh's book has excellent bibliography, and that gave me some clues. I think the critical piece that made this search different than any other was my ability to take advantage of the current state of archival newspapers. I've been in this business long enough that I remember sitting in front of those god-awful microfilm readers <laughs> with the dim, dim lights and the, the awkward handles. and the, Getting dizzy sometimes, right, when they spin by? Uh, yeah, and not knowing whether the feed load goes on the left side or the right side or how you thread the darn thing yeah, printing. through the lens. <laughs> and then, you know, unless you know exactly what you're looking for in terms of an issue, searching that way is just very inefficient and ineffective because you can just stare at those pages for so long and they just it all becomes a blur but we're at a point where there are significant online archives of newspapers some available without cost others with fees 
the big difference is they're all linked by search engines. So suddenly I could search, you know, as one website would say, you know, 13 million pages of newspapers for specific keywords like City Point, Lincoln, and whatever. And I started to turn up some amazing sources because that technology was really not readily available even 10 years ago. You know, no one's going to spend the time looking for something that they're not even sure is there. I'll give you, I think, my favorite story about that. One of those search engines popped on a social register, social events column for a Canadian newspaper that reported a reception for a newly arrived United States council. And it said that as part of the program, the hostess, a woman named Minnie Campbell, read a portion of a letter from her father who during the American Civil War was a contract surgeon working for the Union Army at City Point, mentioning the day he met General Grant and Abraham Lincoln. And that was the extent of the mention. There was no quote of it or anything like that. That led me on a search through a variety of archives in Canada. And finally, I had reached dead ends, but one of the points I had contacted was a genealogist who was working on the Campbell Buck family. The doctor's name was Anson Buck. And she said, you know, many Campbell's letters are in a whole different province than the one I had been searching. Hmm. So I went there, and sure enough, they found the folder, they found the letter, and I got another witness added in to that day on March 25th when Lincoln is at Fort Wadsworth in Petersburg, and he's standing next to Grant, and they're chatting, and this this guy overheard some of the conversation. So I had a, a small piece, but it, I think it added to the texture. I was anxious to make it a very rich texture of different voices speaking about their impressions of Lincoln and what he said and what he did. And only because of the newspaper archive and that search engine would I have ever found this. I'm pretty confident when I say I believe this letter had never been quoted before in any Lincoln study. But here was a man standing, you know, 10 feet away from Abraham Lincoln listening as he talked to General Grant and General Meade at Fort Wadsworth and recalling some of the conversation. I mean, you can't get any better than that. (laughs) Really, what a magic moment. I'm smiling here as you're talking, and I'm just feeling goosebumps just thinking about it. You know, it's literally what every historian hopes for. Often you'll have little things. For me, it's William McKinley and Winston Churchill. McKinley happens to be the first president that Churchill meets, and they both come away, and there's just a line or two that they're favorably impressed or Mm -hmm. just from Churchill. Writes his mother, and man, I tracked that down, tracked it down, tried to find what did he write, and... And I spoke to a fellow at the Churchill Center, and he said, you know, I have all Churchill's words searchable, so we can just search in there. And sure enough, that's exactly what he wrote in the letter to his mother. I was so favorably impressed with the president, and I just kind of felt that door closing on me as somebody who wanted to have some details. With McKinley having been at Antietam and Churchill being a big student of the Civil War, there was surely something about that, and yet you don't have that fly on the wall. So what an amazing thing to go and find it. And it being in Canada probably had just never been touched. And if she doesn't make that remark, it doesn't make its way here into Lincoln's greatest journey. That's right. Absolutely right. If the newspaper reporter had mentioned those key words, which the search engine latched onto and led me to. Now, again, I then had to do the digging and chasing, and it took a lot of work and a little luck. But I got the Anson Buck letter, and a little bit of it is quoted in the book. 
You weren't working on a mystery without any clue, as the song goes. Otherwise, you are stuck with those just giant tomes where things are retold and not always accurately or people get things wrong. So I love the brave new world here. The Internet's good for a lot of things. Right. It's definitely a positive for the Internet. And not only U.S. Grant are here at City Point, but also his friend and comrade, William Tecumseh Sherman. He's there when Lincoln is there. So what impact does it have on his conduct of the war? I imagine this is kind of like two friends who have no secrets from each other, Grant and Sherman, and now the president's coming. So it's kind of a fun dynamic when you think of people getting along like that, or you hope that they do. Well, uh, you know, I have to say I, I had done a book on Sherman's March to the Sea called Southern Storm. And I had presented a scene as Sherman did it, but in a way its significance was lost on me until I did the research for this book. And I realized that Sherman, for all his great skill as a military man, he also had a sense of history that I think was pretty remarkable. I mean, here's the guy who's gone into legend and lore for the March to the Sea and the March to the Carolinas. And when he gets there, he realizes that for all of what he's done, the big historical moment is about to happen in Virginia with Grant and Lee. (laughs) And Sherman realizes that if he wants to be on that stage, that's where he needs to be. So he calls up Grant and, you know, says, I'd like to come up and chat with you. And Grant says, sure, come on up. And Lincoln knows nothing about this. Lincoln has come down, you know, to spend a little time with Grant. And Grant comes over one evening with some officers and they chat and on their way out the door, he says, by the way, you know, General Sherman will be here in an hour or two. And Lincoln went, what? (laughs) (laughs) Say what? But, you know, the first part of that story is Sherman comes up to lobby his friend Grant to hold off long enough for Sherman's army to come up and be in on the kill of Robert E. Lee's army. Because Sherman understands with that sense of historical perspective I mean, look, for all the wonderful things that Sherman did on the March to the Sea and the Carolinas, it doesn't match saying the word Appomattox in terms of the power it has on American memory. Even people don't know anything about the Civil War. You know, the five or six things they know is Appomattox. And thanks to God knows how many Hollywood B-movies, we know it's the moment that ended the Civil War. So his instincts were right on. So first part of this story is he came up to lobby Grant to hold off. And Grant, being Grant, he had a plan. He needed Sheridan's cavalry to make it complete. Sheridan's cavalry was there. There was no reason to sit around and wait for another two weeks for Sherman's army to come up. So he basically told Sherman, no way. And Sherman had to live with that. Then, you know, Sherman goes over. They have two meetings with Grant. The first one, a social meeting, and the second one, the famous conference on the River Queen, which includes Admiral Porter. And really, it's not a question of strategy. I think the two messages, in a way, they're contradictory messages that Lincoln is delivering, is number one, we need to end this as soon as possible. And number two, we need to minimize casualties as much as possible. Because I think Lincoln understood that with the end of the war clearly in sight, in a way, every death in a battle from this point on is a wasted life, is a life cut short. There's just no possible reason to fight anymore because the war is clearly coming to an end. So this is heavily on his mind. And so these are kind of the twin messages he delivers to the three others present at this meeting. And I think, again, it it gets to his thinking is that he wants it over and he doesn't want more to see those columns in the newspapers with those names of casualties to keep churning out the way they have been. So 
that's really kind of the message he leaves both of them with. You're enjoying my chat with Noah Andre Trudeau, author of Lincoln's Greatest Journey, 16 Days That Changed the Presidency, March 24th to April 8th, 1865. You can browse our guests' many other intriguing Civil War titles online. We're just talking about what a great boon the Internet is to historians who want to get it right. His website is Lincoln1865.com. Ryan Quint on the Emerging Civil War blog writes of Lincoln's Greatest Journey, quote, Utilizing the same narrative style that he has used before in studies about Sherman's March to the Sea and the Battle of Gettysburg, Trudeau breaks the trip down by day. This style makes it easy to follow what Lincoln does each day of his extended stay at City Point, unquote. I want to ask you about that structure, including the casebook at the end of Lincoln's Greatest Journey, as well as those letters that you have in there from regular people like this doctor, not these giants that we want them to be our ears for. What were you hoping to give the reader by formatting the book this way? I think a couple of things. I wanted you, look, we're going to be a fly on the wall to Lincoln for these 16 days. And while I realize that life doesn't always come to to wonderful resolution at certain time points, but still I felt it was important that as Lincoln evolves while he's down there and as Lincoln experiences different events, I wanted you to be there as they happen and as they occurred to Lincoln. I think that was an important part of this. And part of it, too, is I'm hoping that for future historians, this becomes the template of those events at City Point, and I didn't want there to be any confusion about what happened on what day. But then this means I've made a number of choices, as all historians do, based on evidence that I found in my research. I wanted the story to be clean. That is, I, I wanted you to, to read, the, if you will, the new story of Lincoln's time at City Point without a lot of side trips to for footnotes, or explanatory notes. But I also felt I owed it to people who even know a, a modest amount about Lincoln in this later year of the last year of his life, because they're going to say, well, wait a minute, Trudeau's got this wrong. He has this happening this day, or where's so-and-so? I don't see William Crook here anywhere. What's going on? I had an obligation, I felt, to explain some of the choices I made and why I made them. And the solution I found was to have a section in the back of the book where, again, chapter by chapter, I explain why either some famous stories are omitted or why I've placed a well-known story in a different chronology than it usually is placed. And so I wanted to do that both for serious historians who read this and even casual readers to understand the process that I went through to come to these conclusions and decisions. You know, it's funny, Lincoln is the great commoner, the man of the common people. So I think I wanted as many of those boys in blue who saw him, doctors at the hospital who saw him, people working at City Point who saw him, I wanted their voices to be part of this mix because that was an important part. You know, Lincoln had eyes. He saw what was going on. While he's down there, he reviews a whole division of African-American troops. He sees newly freed African-Americans who in Richmond and Petersburg who have just understood that they're no longer slaves, and he sees the looks in their faces. At City Point, he sees African-Americans working as wage laborers instead of slaves. 
And I think it's not a coincidence that when he returns to Washington and gives that sad to say last speech from the White House uh, portico, he makes a big transition for him. He has been sitting on the fence on what do we do with this body of people that we have suddenly liberated? What happens next? And he, in that speech, comes out and says he is for extending voting rights to a limited number of African Americans. He specifies highly educated ones and veterans. Frederick Douglass himself said this was a small thing, but an important thing. And so I think that's kind of the synergy between his experiences at City Point and the makings of what would have been some of the policy elements of his second term. You mentioned that this trip in Lincoln's greatest journey marks his longest break from the White House since the onset of the war. And I think we feel maybe from George Washington's journey, another book that I spoke to the author about, maybe from back then, we've always had this idea. We like our presidents to get out there and presidents themselves have picked up on that and said, let me go among the people and let me see what they're thinking, get some things I can't get just from it being filtered through all those people flooding into his office saying, hire me for this job or that. That job. Mm-hmm. But it brought to mind for me the criticism of President Jimmy Carter a century later during the Iran hostage crisis. And I wondered if those kinds of criticisms were aimed at Lincoln at the time, or was the communications technology such that the scope of the war made it understandable that he would be in the thick of it and not be out there among the troops? Um, yeah, you know, the office of the presidency really through the Civil War and probably a couple terms beyond that there's an insular quality even though the president is in a way the doors are open once a week for a public reception and office holders can pigeonhole him in all sorts of places there's still an isolation between the president and the people that's there so i think in a way this going down to city point is being with the soldiers with the civilians with those who have been affected by the war is certainly, I think, a dramatic step even for him. This is a case where I think I stumbled onto something that I thought was significant. I'm pretty confident that most writers about Lincoln at this point in his life have missed. When Grant goes to the front, there's a process in place by which the general in command sends a sort of summary of what's been going on in terms of combat and what's happening back to headquarters, which forwards them to the War Department which edits, cleans them up a little bit, but then ships them out to the wire service, what was in the wire service. And it's, you know, within three or four days, depending on the importance of the event, it's appearing in newspapers large and small throughout the United States. And it's not unusual for the Secretary of War to do a little top and bottom to the note. Well, while Lincoln is down there, right after Grant leaves for the front, with really no fanfare whatsoever, he just begins to annotate these war bulletins that are going north. And, you know, I can understand why I think a lot of Lincoln scholars and everything sort of just passed over it. There's nothing profound in what he's saying. It's all, you know, uh, this morning General Grant telegraphed me news of the great victory. And then you have Grant's telegram. It's of that caliber. But the fact that the President of the United States was speaking through the mass medium of that time, the newspapers, directly to the public was unprecedented. I only caught on to this when I was doing my, some of my newspaper searches, and I found 
the reprinting of these, and I looked at the banners that the newspapers were putting on them, and it's, you know, the president to the people, President Lincoln's latest war dispatch. I mean, it was that important that it suddenly became this moment in time where the president of the United States was the personal people's representative at this critical moment in the course of the war. And in fact, when Lincoln gives his, again, last speech, there's a line that's usually ignored, I think, in any analysis of his talk, but where he says, I had the great personal pleasure of bringing word of Grant's success to you, speaking to the public. This was a, an amazing moment in the presidency in which, it, for the first time, used the podium, the platform of the mass media to speak directly to the people of the United States. And I, again, I have to believe that in a second term, especially given some of the important issues that he would have to confront, that I think Lincoln was aware of what had happened when he did this. And I, I would have been really surprised if he hadn't found a way to use that to help sell the country on some of the issues that he was going to be tackling. He was somebody who played the long game, I'm thinking, listening to you describe that. So it sort of looks like, I bet to you as a historian, I won't put words in your mouth, like he's planting seeds there for a future strategy, for the idea of governing. Running a war is one thing, even when you were talking about passing the 13th Amendment, saying, oh, right, he's the head of the government. He's not just the commander-in-chief. He doesn't just have a war to win. He also has a country to govern at the same time. So it seems like that maybe is him planting a little bit of a seed, whittling a stick there that he's going to use later on down the road when he does have to just govern and he's going to lose some of those war powers and things like that, do you think? Uh, I, I think that's, with, with respect, I think that's reading probably too much into it. In a way, he sort of explains to Grant, I mean, it's typical Lincoln, but he says, having nothing better to do, I've begun annotating your messages. But I, I think that started out as he needed to feel in some small way he was part of the process. I personally feel that the assignment to him of a personal telegrapher, Grant's personal telegrapher, a fellow named Samuel Beckwith, again, another character that's often not mentioned in any chronicle of Lincoln's time at City Point, but this is a young man who was part of the telegraphic squad, if you will, very elite group. Lincoln understood that there was great events unfolding down there at City Point, and he wanted to be a part of it, but also do anything he could to help it happen. And again, you know, he kind of half-jokingly, the quote I, I found was uh, in a message back to Grant, he says, you know, having no great deal to do here, to explain the fact that he's begun annotating uh, Grant's reports from the front before they're sent on to Washington and from there across the country. I think that's what it started as. It's just a sort of an impulse to be useful and helpful. And I'm guessing it's not really till he got back to Washington that he, he began to understand that it was a hit, that it really struck the popular imagination, the fact that the president of the United States was there on the scene and was observing on behalf of America what was happening. And it just had an effect far beyond what the content of what he actually did would have merited. I mean, there's no Lincoln quotes that will ever come out of his annotations to Grant's messages. But nevertheless, the very act of the president of the United States doing this, I think, opened up a whole new avenue for him that I'm convinced he would have exploited further in a second term. 
I was just trying to think ahead to him governing. And of course, I guess it's one of those big unanswered questions. We'll never know how he would govern. Right. We do know how Grant governed. You alluded to that earlier. He has this strained relationship with Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, and didn't everybody. I was wondering how you think Grant's relationship here with Lincoln, observing him up close, impacted Grant's time in the White House four years later. Well, one source I found helpful in that was after his two terms as president, Grant embarks on a world tour accompanied by a a reporter named Young. And Young later collected all of Grant's experiences and conversations into a book. I think it's called Around the World with General Grant or something like that. But it was in the course of this that Grant really talked about Lincoln and almost all those conversations touched base with the time he spent with him at City Point, which convinced me, you know, I try to say it, I think it confirmed, if you will, Grant's own sort of pragmatic approach to solving issues. And I think he took very seriously, as Lincoln did when it came to African-Americans, that in a way, by using them as troops in the army to help win the war, actions which cost the death of thousands of them, the United States was making a promise to this group of people that you would be part of the fabric of this country in time. And, you know, when Grant sort of sends the Union Army after the KKK, I think it's part of his sense that a promise was made. And I don't know that Grant was any less of a a racist than any other American at that time, but he understood the importance of keeping promises. And the promises had been made to the African-Americans who gave their service that your sacrifice was not in vain and it would count as we sort of looked at the society that emerged out of the Civil War. Now, obviously, it took a terrible turn in the wrong direction not long after that, but I think Grant sort of grabbed that from Lincoln, that sort of pragmatic focus on the target, and if you got to zig and zag and go in a circle for a while, as long as the end of the day you're an inch closer to that goal, then that's the thing to do. And I think part of what I guess keeps Lincoln's scholarship busy is that, you know, he's probably contradicted himself on every major issue of the time, but that was sort of his nature of working through these things. And I think Grant had that some of those same qualities, and, and I believe that he picked up on some of that for his presidency, as you know, I, which I think is in revisionist histories now is generally being rated a little better than it used to be. And he says as much on this trip to Young in terms of the kinds of respect he had for Lincoln and the admiration he had, which really stemmed almost all from his encounters with him at City Point. So I think there was a shadow of Lincoln that was there in the Grant presidency, although itself was obscured by a variety of other issues having to do with it. But it was there nonetheless. One of the stops the president makes in Lincoln's greatest journey is to that hospital with those many thousands of war wounded. This isn't a quick photo op on Lincoln's part. He sets out an ambitious plan to meet all the men who've suffered in service to the Union cause. This is such a daunting task and a draining one, yet he's rejuvenated by it, which seems almost contradictory. I think, in a way, the commander-in-chief at some point, unless he's going to wallow in self-pity, has to find a balance between the deaths that happened under his command, if you will, 
and the needs of the country in moving forward. And, you know, Lincoln really, I think, had this in mind for a couple of days. He was just really waiting until it was right at the end. And clearly, on the morning of April 8th, he understood that he could not stay out of Washington for another day and that this would be his last day at City Point. So he, at that point, insisted that today would be the day he'd go there. So I think this had been in his mind for a while. And it's just the enormity of what happened and the way this man opened up himself to the suffering and cost of this war, I think was part of the way he sort of took it into himself saying, I'm responsible and you boys have paid the price to restore the union. And if I have to do a top 10 list of great moments of the Lincoln presidency, Anybody that doesn't have this somewhere in that top 10 is just missing one of the great moments, most powerfully evocative moments of the Lincoln presidency that ever happened as he did insist on personally visiting and touching person to person, you know, six to 7,000 of these guys in the course of several hours, including those who were too badly wounded to get out of their beds. You know, if they're ambulatory, they lined them up outside the ward huts sometimes in a straight line, sometimes in a circle, and he would go around and touch each one and say just a kind word, thank you, or we'll be going home soon, that sort of thing. And then he went into where the ones that couldn't move were and also had kind words for them. I mean, as you pointed out, no one said you really need to do this as a photo op. It was just something he was compelled to do from his own sense of values and you know, sense of righteousness. And to me, it's an amazing moment of the Lincoln presidency that I would argue is really passed over by everybody in their hurry to get to April 14th. But it just speaks volumes of that man's deep humanity and sense of sacrifice that had been called for to restore the Union. You've given very generously of your time, which I appreciate, and I want to just squeeze one final question in, and I'm going to do so with your words. You write, quote, the time has come to stop defining Lincoln by the melodramatic manner of his death, unquote. I've said before on the show that I try hard not to define somebody who dies tragically by that flash of the gun. He's always going to be connected to John Wilkes Booth, is Lincoln, mm-hmm. but you know he does have a life before then. That doesn't define him. So with that in mind, what new picture of the 16th president of the United States do you hope readers will take away from Lincoln's greatest journey? Well, I think on several levels, I think, number one, I'm treating him as a human being, and you're really seeing him going with the flow. I mean, there's no great pronouncements that happen down there. There's just a lot of interactions, and I think the quality of the man's character emerges from that. One reviewer of the book sort of mentioned the fact that they liked all that detail, but they said in the end it's a moot point. Well, I would argue that anything that helps us deepen our understanding of the character of Abraham Lincoln is not a moot point. It just enriches our sense of his personality over that war and, again, brings to light a whole raft of incidences and encounters that have not been caught in the net of biographers or historians. And I'm hoping, you know, at the end of the day, you read the book and you say, God, what a man he was. And done honestly, not because he's Abraham Lincoln, but because 
he's just down there in the trenches, if you will, experiencing it and trying to do what he can to make everyone's time a little bit better down there. Well, Noah Andre Trudeau, you did definitely do that in Lincoln's Greatest Journey. It does help us look forward to what might have been and what we lost out on having Lincoln be tragically slain at Ford's Theater. I want to thank you very much for this up-close, personal portrait of the great emancipator. Best of luck with Lincoln's Greatest Journey, and I look forward to the next book. Well, thank you, Dean. It's a great pleasure talking to you. Again, the book is Lincoln's Greatest Journey, 16 Days That Changed the Presidency, March 24th to April 8th, 1865. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com, and we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you spend at no additional cost to you. It helps give us a few pennies to buy some hardtack. Once again, my sincere thanks to Noah Andre Trudeau for joining us and for bringing us into General Grant's camp and even into that hospital tent during these key days of Abraham Lincoln's presidency. If you enjoyed our chat, check out Noah Andre Trudeau's other Civil War books at Lincoln1865.com. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash history author that's it for this installment of the history author show i hope you'll join us for next monday's all new interview right here on iHeartRadio. and remember if you subscribe to us on itunes please take a minute to leave us a review well until our next trip into the past together thanks so much for time traveling with us today and have a great week Oh.